in a small cabin on an island in the archipelago but i'm as usual outdone by richard allen and i am uh, in a churchyard uh, somewhere in gloucestershire <laughs> on a walk so if you hear crows in the background or me greeting dog walkers uh, please please forgive us for this one episode <laughs> I think I think I think they, this is added value rather than anything else. So <laughs> we had talked before and and referred to the the issue of online child safety and said that this is something that we want to get back to and and it's a it's a vast vast issue. But but the, at the heart of this issue is this notion that that the internet is an environment that is not entirely friendly to children and where there are safety issues and those safety issues. They have to be understood, categorized. They have to be uh, sort of deeply researched and explored. And and then what you do is that you try to find one thing, which is like a, a limiting uh, threshold, age, where you say, you know, at what age should you be able to, to, to access the internet? And the other thing is, you know, and who, who should be responsible for what on the internet when it comes to kids. So I, I think I, we, I would love to start asking you about the first question. How, how do yep. we think about age limits on the internet? And, you know, how do we, how should we build those? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the reason I find this so interesting is that we, we should be really candid. We've essentially created a system in which people are incentivized to lie and they lie at massive scale about their age. And I don't, I don't mean that sort of, like I say, I don't mean that negatively, but, um, uh, but they, you know, they, they, they will put in the wrong age because they want access to the services. And in a lot of cases, that's the young people themselves, the, the people who are under the, whatever the relevant age is for the service. And we can get into the details. Sometimes it's 16, sometimes it's 13. So I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, people accessing necessarily pornographic sites at the age of 18, but we're just talking about bog standard internet services that's you know search social media etc etc so people are lying at massive scale and any of the surveys that are done by regulators ofcom for example the uk communications regulator looks at this and it, it kind of goes you know 80 percent or whatever i've got the figures in front of me but massive numbers of you know 11 and 12 year olds are on all of the mainstream social media services and the only way they could have got there would have been to lie about their age and in many cases, they're doing it entirely with the support of their parents. I mean, well, at least their parents are not objecting them to them doing this. They know they're doing it, and they're not objecting. So, so this is for me is sort of fundamental. We've got ourselves into a situation where the legislation often tends to try and ratchet up the requirements to prove you are the age that you say you are. At the same time, people's behavior, young people and their parents, are kind of going, yeah, we don't really care about those limits. If we want to access the services, we'll do it. And, and if we have to put in a false age, we'll just put in a false age. And, and so let's talk about that, because that's kind of extraordinary. What you're saying is that we have legislation that almost everyone ignores that is out there to protect children, though. That's the, that's the purpose. What, what is the disconnect here? Because, I mean, I can phrase it differently. Why do we have this legislation if, you know, with the famous words of Dr. House, everyone lies? Yeah, I, I mean, it was, it's a dumb good intention. But again, if you, if you tr track the EU's legislation, let's just sort of stick to that for the moment, the General Data Protection Regulation, it went through about three years of debate during which uh, it said that the minimum age at which you can collect people's data and process it without their parents' consent is 13. 
and pretty much everyone thought, well, that's kind of reasonable. We can we can talk about the eleven and twelve year olds, but you know, the thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year olds are sort of covered by that. Then at the very last minute, the proposal changed, and it said. 16 is now the minimum age limit. It gave the opportunity for countries to what they call derogate, posh word, but deviate from that if they wanted to. But essentially, it was raised to 16. I remember at the time kind of going, where did this come from? And no one would admit to doing it. So you you ask the British people in Brussels, and they said, oh, it's the French who insist on it. You ask the French, they go, no, it's the British. (laughs) And you're just going round and round in circles, and no one would claim ownership. But at some point, they said, let's move it to 16. And I think frankly it's what what um in other areas we call sort of virtue signaling you know uh, we care about children and and if there's a proposal one is 13 and the other is 16 uh, then the 16 one sounds more protective therefore we'll say 16 yeah so you care more about someone if you sort of have a higher and, if and you it, have the higher of it yeah yeah, and, ignoring and, the fact that you're just creating a much bigger category of liars by going to 16, you know, and doing it at the last minute without proper debate or discussion. Yeah, and at, at the heart of this is also the question of, of 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 why this is an item for legislation, because in in most cases, you know, I I determine when my kids get to see certain movies. For example, we do have age limits on movies, uh, but but they are largely also ignored, by the way. <laughs> and I think yeah. it, it's sort of there there is something hear about the the parent vis-a-vis the legislator and and how we how we balance this is is why is the legislator interested in setting an age limit when we know for example that if you look at two 13 year olds they the maturity levels can be widely different you can have somebody who's who's sort of you know uh, 14 15 somebody who's perhaps a little bit more towards 11 10 because the age is not is not the single best indicator of maturity. Yeah, so, so I mean, philosophically, there are quite um, different sort of traditions involved here. So some of the traditions are very much focused on parental rights, and I'd argue, in some sense, the U.S. actually U.S. law generally is is focused in that direction. Parents get to decide what's right for their kids. And then there's a sort of other notion, which is encapsulating things like the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, is encapsulated actually UK law and something called the Children's Act, where children have their own independent rights, distinct from the rights of their parents. Uh, and actually, in that latter group, sort of contend in both directions. One is it, it can sort of drive you towards saying, well, children have the right to access things like internet services. And I actually had an encounter with, perhaps not surprisingly, a Scandinavian uh, government representative who, who was sort of outraged that Facebook was setting a lower age limit because if children in that country, you know, wanted to express themselves through the platform, they ha- they literally had a right to express themselves through the platform. But the, uh, the flip side of that is it, it also says, look, if children have got these independent rights to access services, they equally have a right to be protected when they access those services. A classical human rights framework. So I say I think we've got those two traditions. There's one which sort of arguably is more, I almost say it's almost religious. It's almost that sort of notion of the parent decides for the child. And at the most extreme end, that would say things like, if the parent for religious reasons doesn't want the child to have a blood transfusion, you know, they have a right to decline a blood transfusion or they have a right to educate their child out of school in a commune or whatever it is. And, you know, and there are examples that we can see to, say, particularly sort of strongly represent in the US. And then there's this other, other tradition which says, no, children have independent rights. Sometimes parents are 
are not good and the and the children's rights need to be seen as actually more important than the parents rights they override it if the child needs a blood transfusion don't care what the parents think the child's going to get the blood transfusion because and a judge can decide to do that and i say within that tradition which I think is strongly represented in the European debate, you also have this strong notion that the child has this right both to use the service and to use it safely. And, and the right to use the service and use it safely, I think it sounds sounds good. I mean, there's there's this, as you say, if you trace this back historically, it's almost children-like property vis-a-vis children-like yes. individuals. That's sort of how, how this played out many, many hundred years ago. And and, and what, you, what you sort of want to do here, I think, is that you want to say, that second perspective where children have individual rights and those rights sometimes can supervene those of the parents seems to be the rational and, and to some extent the, the the sane one to really respect the rights of children but but if you do that then 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 who because that's not what gets you to an age limit if if that was no. what you did you wouldn't get to an age limit with that model so where does the age limit come from so, so again like candidly i think quite a lot of it is you know, um, as we've discussed many times, there there is a significant number of people who are very active in the policy scene who, who think fundamentally that um, particularly advertising-driven internet, large-scale internet services are are bad, evil, whatever language you want to use, and it's under this banner of surveillance capitalism. And so I think there's a lot of people who come from that starting point, and if this stuff is bad for everyone, it is particularly bad for kids. And so they want to keep the kids off. They, you know, they do explicitly, I think, um, uh, want children not to be using mainstream internet services. And actually, in their ideal world, I think they'd want the, the mainstream internet services to change altogether. And to a certain extent, I think the the children issue or the teenager issue becomes a wedge for that. Um, so, so you can say, look, uh, you know, w- we are going to insist that you don't do things like targeted advertising for children, really because we'd like you not to do targeting advertising for anyone. And we're going to kind of use this as a wedge issue to drive that. We think you need to get much more robust consents for the use of data for everyone, but particularly for children. So it's a kind of extension, I think, for a lot of people of a general view that this surveillance capitalism for want of a better word is a bad thing and that people need to be protected from it and children especially need to be protected from it i think that's very much where the age limits come from yes and 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 it's interesting because you have the age limits in europe but then of course the one of the most normative age limits the age of 13 um is is uh, from copa the child children online privacy protection act in the in the us where where this sort of that this is an early piece of legislation where where i think there there was the same kind of argument you thought that okay this is this is a new environment you know, it can potentially be threatening, and sure, there are real threats there, and so we need to set an age limit, and that then ended up with with that age limit of thirteen, which which sort of meant that in the toss of almost every social media company, the toss terms uh, terms of services terms and terms of service terms of, of service, service. <laughs> yes, thank you, <laughs> yes, uh, that that those terms uniformly said you cannot be on this service. If you are beneath the uh, under the age of thirty, and so every social media executive, when asked, would say, you know, there are no children under thirteen on my service because if they are, they are in breach of contract, in breach of the terms of service, and and that that creates yet another kind of lying in a sense because if you look at this, of course you know that there's some portion of the people using your service who are going to be under thirteen, uh, but. 
but you're sort of you've tried to make sure that that doesn't happen <laughs> through the only means you have available to you, the terms of service, or at least sort of the first level means you have available to you. So, so how do we deal with this? Yeah, I, I mean, co copper in a sense, you know, created this sort of uh, original sin for these models where um, ignorance is bliss. Uh, so essentially, it said it incentivized not knowing. <laughs> so what it said is, as long as you don't know that they're under 13 year olds, you're fine. Um, and so you can get on. And actually, in a world in which, you know, the kids are happily identifying themselves as over 13, even if they're not, and the parents are happily allowing them to do so, it kind of works pretty well, because like, you're, you haven't got a problem, you just need to deal with those situations where somebody does tell you explicitly that somebody is under 13. And in those cases, you you need to, to actually make sure that account is closed down. And actually, American internet companies are, by and large, pretty good at that. Once once they've had sort of explicit information to say somebody's under 13, uh, they'll they'll get rid of the account. But that doesn't mean that they haven't got under 13-year-olds on their services. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily incentivize themselves, incentivize the services to deal with the under 13-year-olds. And I, I think that's probably my biggest criticism of these models that, that rely on these age limits, is that if you're saying to a company, look, ignorance is bliss. As long as you don't know they're underage, you're fine. And as long as you've got a system somewhere that says, you know, if somebody reports that you deal with it, what you're actually doing is saying, uh, at the same time, make sure <laughs> you don't suspect that somebody is underage, or don't don't sort of, uh, no, uh, sort of notify yourself that somebody is underage if you suspect that. And that does mean I've been in these discussions where, you know, nowadays with AI, and uh, again, Nicholas, you've talked a lot about it. You know, with more information, you can actually do good things with AI. And one of the good uses of AI is that it's perfectly straightforward, I actually think now, for most of the large platforms with a reasonably high degree of accuracy to, to categorize their users by age. There's all sorts of signals that they give off. It, you know, it can be their cultural taste. It can be you know, uh, AI on image recognition, looking at the kind of images that they're sharing, all of that stuff. And so they could categorize people and go, actually, we've, we've identified the cohort of 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds. But they won't. And the reason they won't do it is because by doing that, they create this massive legal risk for themselves. And and so I would love a system in which I actually think it's in the child's interest. Look, if they're going to be on there, and we can talk a little bit more about whether they should be on there, but assuming they're going to be on there, I think it's much safer for an internet platform to use its clever AI technology to identify the 11 and 12-year-olds and create special safeguards, even if they've said they're 18, you can treat them as though they're 11-year-olds. For example, very concretely, you might say in your um, reporting system, if I get a report from this category of user, somebody who I think is a younger user goes to the top of the queue, going to get dealt with in 15 minutes. <clears throat> you know, maybe your normal turnaround time is 24 hours. But for these group, 15 minutes. If it's a bullying report, take it more seriously. Um, if it's a report to do with inappropriate sexual contact, absolutely. Like, you know, top of the list, deal with that in three minutes. But you can't do that unless your internal systems have been able to classify the, the, the user as an 11 or 12-year-old. 
And at the moment, you're hugely disincentivized from doing that classification because if you do, you potentially run risk of both copper in the US and now the GDPR in the EU. Yes. And and this is so interesting because with this kind of age inferral, you could also see if somebody who was at a much advanced age was trying to reach out to younger younger users of the service. So you could you could catch grooming, you could catch all kinds of different things that we really want to catch and want to make sure that we stop. So so how, let's talk a little bit about the question that you just mentioned of whether or not they should be on the services. And let's add to that question something else. I mean, one response to this that, that more and more services are exploring is to say, okay, we'll set up a walled garden that it's just going to be for the up to 13-year-olds, sort of a kid's garden. And they can, they can play in that garden until they turn 13. And when they turn 13, we will sort of graduate their account into a grown-ups or a, sort of a, a regular account. Um, and I mean, it, it, this, this, this comes with several, I think, uh, problems. One of them, of course, is that most kids wouldn't be caught dead in the kids' version of the app <laughs> because they, they really believe that that's for kids and they're not kids because most kids don't think they're kids, <laughs> at least at a yeah. certain age. And so, um, and many adults do think they're kids. That's very yeah. true. Yes. <laughs> and, and then the other problem it creates is that, that then you have this, this sort of really vulnerable, identified cohort of kids for, for a different kinds of safety reasons, pointing out that they are kids within this system actually creates an additional risk. So should they be on the services? Should they be on kids' versions of the services? How should we, if we sort of were just doing this from first principles and we were thinking about the safety of the child first, where would we go? Uh, I mean, the first principle is to look at, you know, when are parents giving their children internet-connected mobile phones or internet-enabled mobile phones. I, that's, the, that's the first choice. When, when do we as a society think that it's appropriate for our children to have an internet-enabled device in their pocket? And for many of us, I mean, certainly I think in the UK, it's very typically associated with going to secondary school. It's age 11 and quite often before, frankly. So there'll be a, there'll be a period, I think, when kids are sort of five, six, seven. I, I actually think it's quite helpful to break it down into these age groups, sort of five, six, seven is going to be much more using your parents' phone. Eight, nine, ten. Some families will certainly be giving their children their own phones at that age. And eleven plus, absolutely. And and yeah, when a kid goes to secondary school, not least because you've got to organise stuff. Like when are you leaving school? If you're going on a school, I mean, my kids, it was like when they first went on a school trip. <laughs> you can't send kids on a school trip. Well, you, you can do, but nowadays nobody would think it was safe to send kids on a school trip without having some ability to communicate with them. And, and certainly in the UK, the standard thing is WhatsApp, which you're not supposed to be on until you're 16. But hey, you know, <laughs> I would rather my child on a school trip is breaking WhatsApp's terms of service than being in danger because I've got no way of getting hold of them and the teacher's got no way of getting hold of them. So 11, I think, is the standard age. So the first thing is, like, what age do they get the internet-enabled device? And then the second question really then is, yes, at what age are different services going to be appropriate for them? Uh, and messaging is an obvious baseline one. Uh, again, for some people, maybe controversial, um, but I, I find it hard to sort of imagine why you would have a connected device without messaging these days. But then there's things obviously like social media services, uh, perhaps much more controversial with because that creates this sort of lasting, potentially public record of what they're doing. Um, other services I find interesting, like mapping. Again, I, I you know I think it's it's much safer for a child at a really young age to learn how to use a mapping service, and if they use a popular mapping service developed by your former employer Nicholas, 
it does involve a certain amount of collection of personal data. It's just sort of built into the product. Yep. And yeah, if you yeah. have a rule that says you can't collect the data of you know, under 16-year-olds, it's going to be a real challenge um, when, they, when they take on a mapping service. I, again, personally think that's sort of fine. But I think that's where we need to have the debate. Let's not, I mean, it would be logical to have a law that says, look, children under 16 cannot have smartphones. They must have the old Nokia phones with no internet connection. That would be logical, but of course, completely unrealistic. Okay, that's not going to happen. So at what age are people getting those devices? And then what are the right kind of services to have at which age? And then what do we expect of the service providers for those ages? And you're right, in some cases, it may be a dedicated specific product there'll certainly be products for like you know the six five six seven eight year age group which are only kid focused sort of lego type products that are actually quite good for for that age group and minecraft type products and then there'll be another set of ones which are uh, could be used by children or adults and perhaps that's the more controversial area where you start to get into messaging services and some of the social media services so let me play devil's advocate for a bit. I mean, we, we have a, another kind of technology where we think it's very natural to have an 18 or 21 year uh, old limit and where we actually force people to take a test before they can use it. And that's cars. Yes. Right. So so um, when it comes to cars, we find that it's dangerous for people if they run them and it's dangerous for other people if they run them unless they have the right age and they have gone through the test and they get their license. So so why shouldn't we apply the, the car metaphor or car analogy to the internet? Again, as a society, I think we could do that. And I actually think just from a you know, pure regulatory point of view, there is a regulatory logic. If you think it is so dangerous... That's exactly what you should do. And again, I always come back to my famous cookie directive as an example. But, you know, some, sometimes, you know, you're not regulating for the thing you want to regulate. The cookie directive was saying we want to ban targeted advertising. It ended up sort of regulating cookies. It, some people do want to ban the Internet. I think it's a dangerous thing per se for younger kids. And if they do, that should be put on the table, not to kind of regulate for things that sort of work around that. So, First, first thing first, as a regulated debate, let's have the debate. How many of us think that the internet per se is dangerous for kids at different ages? To take your car analogy, is it 11, 13, 16? And if they do, we can have that debate. But if we then decide, no, uh, it's not like a car, it's like a scooter, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, push scooters. <laughs> uh, um, so it's a scooter or even an electric scooter, actually. That maybe is a much more interesting analogy. And we are having some of those debates. Should you have to have some kind of license to ride an electric scooter? And you see kids of all ages riding them. So let's, let's sort of, is it more like the electric scooter? In which case, what's the right kind of thing which is going to be short of a formal ban and driving test, but maybe more than nothing. <laughs> so what's the thing that we need to put in place uh, for different age brackets? But realistically, again, I, I, I think the ban is unrealistic, but I think it has to be debated. And then once we've ruled it out, we then move on to say, well, what is realistic? I think, and, and, and the point of that, I think, is that if you really force yourself to reason through why it's not like a car or more like a scooter or why we shouldn't have a license or an internet license, then you realize that that all of the things that come with that, an age limit, the test, the, you know, 
all of those kinds of responsibility and liability rules that come with it, they should be applied only to that paradigm case. So you then need to look for other solutions. What we have now is sort of not a pure solution, but a mixed solution where there are echoes of the car thinking, echoes of the scooter thinking, and a mix of them, which creates this weirdness where, where you sort of, you get, as you pointed out, massive lying. And so it's, it, it seems as if, if, you know, mixed metaphors always get you, right? <laughs> and in this case, it's, yeah. it's a mixed metaphor problem to a certain extent where we're saying the internet is like a car or it's like a scooter and it's a little bit of both. And we take the age limit from licenses and driving and then we take the parental responsibility from scooters and we just mix it. And that, that makes for, you could argue that makes for, for poor legislation because the mixed metaphors then create this, this secondhand effect. But what, what now is happening is that we're stuck with this mixed metaphor legislation with age limits and with, with this current uh, structure. And that means that we're also building on it. And one of the things we're building, one of the things that we're discussing now in, in a lot of different places is this notion of mandatory age verification. Sorry. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I mean, we just, again, need to be realistic about what we're talking about. Um, sometimes there's a perception that age verification is something that kids would have to do. And again, we just need to be really clear that mandatory age verification means everybody because you can't tell that they're kids unless you've eliminated all the ones who are not kids. And so this basically means us moving to a position where to sign up for internet services, you have to produce some form of ID, official ID, with your age on it. And that's not the kids, that is every single one of us. And and again, I can see why people will make that argument, but I think the argument is more um, broader than the kids one. And the, the kids part is, again, a wedge to drive through or to respond to a concern that people anyway have, which is anonymity on the internet. And there's a lot of people who are concerned about that for all sorts of reasons and often valid. So, so in the UK at the moment, there's a very sort of fierce debate going on about racism and sport, where when um, particularly black uh, football players post things, they get a torrent of racist abuse in response on platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Um, and so, so part of the response to that has been to say, well, if we had mandatory identification of people, that might deal with that. So, so there's a, there is a constituency for mandatory ID verification for everybody to answer a whole range of concerns. And I think the child debate is part of that. Um, but that it, we should be having the debate at that level. What we shouldn't be thinking is, well, you know, we can have a system within which only the children have to prove their age or, or rather prove their identity uh, and not everybody else. There are some systems, to be fair, where people have, have said, look, we can, we can try and get you to prove your age without storing your ID. So that would be answering a slightly different problem. Um, but again, those are, in all cases, it does mean adding extra friction. Because again, if I wanted to avoid having uh, the control, you know, where I had to uh, pass particular barriers because I was a child, I need to prove I'm not a child. So, so you've got things that you want children to do, but the entire population of internet users gets pulled into this because they've got to prove they're not children uh, in order to, to not be subject to whatever controls are being put in place. These are the second, third order effects of the mixed metaphor legislation you get, because at that point, we're discussing the anonymization of the entire internet. And I, I think you pointed out sometime when we were sitting beside each other in a hearing, um, this doesn't necessarily make people nicer. In fact, they're quite comfortable with being not so nice under their own name as well. Um, so it seems to me that that yeah. you're sort of you're then not solving for that problem as well. But but let's get back to the question of, of age verification because doesn't that also create the additional problem of, of of sort of having a 
a, a widely dispersed database of of kids essentially because you could argue you throw away if you're sort of above the age of something then you throw away the identification and you don't store it but you have to store it for the children in order to make sure that you did the age verification what you have created now is that you have a, a set of databases of kids who are using different services spread out across different services and i think for the large platforms that's fine because they have great security uh, routines they have you know really robust systems but this would happen for every new service that came up as well. So everyone would have to collect information on kids. And the end result then would seem to be, and and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that that you would have 10x more uh, data on kids collected about what they're doing than you have today. Yeah, I mean, there's a number... Yeah. Well, there are a number of different models. I mean, some of, the, some of them would sort of just have a token and somebody issues a token somewhere. So, for, I mean, the crudest methods are, are there today where, for example, you might be asked to put in credit card information to prove you're 18. Uh, and that's for the people to prove they're over age. And then having put the credit card information in, in theory, you know, you could throw away, you don't need to retain your personal device. You've just got a token saying this person, well, it doesn't say they're over 18. It says this person was able to use a credit card at the moment at which they carried out the transaction, which we assume means they're over 18. And there are sort of similar models where, where people talk about, you know, whether it's government or others would, would issue a token that a child could use to say, look, I'm 15 or 16. And so that and that token in theory is anonymous and safe and therefore could be reasonably well distributed. But I actually would have a genuine concern that again for those who are concerned about the dominance of the big platforms, look, it's it seems to me like pretty common sense that in a world in which signing up to internet services involves more friction and more disclosure of personal data, you are likely to tend towards well-known established services. That just seems a reasonable thing that, you know, I, uh, I'm whatever I feel about Facebook and Google and others. Look, if, some, if somebody's going to, if they ask me for my government ID, may not like it, but I think eh, they're probably going to keep it secure and they've got a reputation and they've got shareholders. Da, da, da. If it's like, an other internet service i'm an app you've just downloaded from the web and now i'm asking you for your government id i'm like "Mm, no (laughs) i'm not going to go there so i think again there are these second you're right second and third order effects that once you get into requesting much more information at sign up time in whatever form and for whatever purpose it will potentially have a uh, concentrating effect where people will concentrate around those services where they've got more confidence or or just the services they already use i mean the you know give, giving additional information to service you already use is different from giving sensitive identifying information to another service as i say again to be candid the proponents of some of the systems will say look you know we can do it with tokens that are throwaway low risk etc cetera, etc cetera. but again you have to ask you know, if they, uh, how long that would last, <laughs> because if those tokens are are sort of so low risk and involve so little transfer of data, um, how long before people say, well, the token's insufficient, we need something else as well, and then you're back sort of ratcheting up, demanding more and more data. Yes, and so, but uh, we n- now we have explained why the current system is so bad. <laughs> we have sort of yes. gone through and yes. talked about why we think it creates yeah. effects that are not great. And so there, I think it's really, you know, uh, 
probably healthy for us to also admit that there is a real online safety problem for kids. There are, there are threats, there are risks. So so let's let's just talk a little bit about that and what we think should be done about those risks. Yeah. What what are the ways in which we can make kids safer online? Yeah, so there's a bunch of things you can do at the back end, but just starting at the front end, it, my ideal solution, and I'll come back to iOS and Android again, repeated theme, but my ideal solution would be as a parent, when I buy my child their first phone, and it's nearly always going to be a transaction between a parent and a child, that I get the Android phone or the iOS phone. And what happens today is I lie <laughs> and I set it up as though it's potentially me or an over 16 account. In some cases, I'm very virtuous and I figure out how to get through the, you know, the child thingy uh, in order to set it up because to be fair, Apple and Google have created these sort of child-specific versions, but often people get frustrated when they in- install them. But I would, I would like to be able to set it up. Absolutely, honestly, I'd like to be able to say, this phone belongs to an 11-year-old. And then I'd like to set a set of rules. And those rules will vary by parents. And those rules would be, you know, for me as a parent, I'm happy with the child potentially accessing all apps or uh, apps, but not these kind of apps or whatever it is, but I'm going to set a set of rules. And again, some of the kids services do that today. How, how much think, leeway should you have there? Should you be able to say the kids should be able to use all apps or should you or should the legislation be such that you can not allow the the kid to trade in crypto on Coinbase or are there like, yeah. should there be limits or should it be up to the parents? Again, I think we need to have that discussion in detail about different kinds of apps. There are some apps where for, for sort of regulatory reasons, you're right, trading in crypto, probably illegal anyway. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and there'll be some apps that are sort of age limited for other reasons, but something like um, messaging services, for example, uh, I, you know, messaging services, I think pretty much should be up to the parent, which messaging service they want to use with their kids. And their app ratings, uh, right? So um, you could, you could essentially say that you're able to set up some of the app ratings, but, but let's get back to app ratings because I yeah, see you making a face. So, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. And the app, rating, the app ratings are weird because they're not sort of based They're They're based on, I think some odd notions at the moment. Anyway. Um, so I think you, you set it up, you say it's an 11 year old. I say, I'm okay with them using messaging services and this is the one I want them to use. It's my messaging service. Don't want it to have a lower age limit. I'll make a decision about things like social media, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that'll work. And then some people will listen to this and go, oh, that's fine, but you're like ed- super educated in, t- in tech stuff and you know what you're doing. And for a lot of parents, it's a much more of a mystery. So the second part of this, which I think is equally important, is that, um, again, if the services know that the user is 11 – either because they've queried the phone or because they've used clever AI, whatever the permissions that the parents given, the services should be doing all sorts of stuff to meet their duty of care. That's the common language we're talking about. There should be, uh, I've talked about these things, harm reduction plans. They should identify where are the areas of harm for 11-year-olds on their service? You know, do they have a problem with grooming? Uh, do they have a problem with inappropriate distribution of pornography, et cetera, et cetera? And, and then the service should implement all sorts of back-end measures that then uh, tailor the service for, the, for their assumed age of the user, either known age, because the person did correctly enter it in the phone and they know that's an 11-year-old, but they've not had to kick them off or pretend they're not an 11-year-old. They've allowed them on there, as long as it's a, you know, not a legally age-restricted service. They've allowed them on, and now they've tailored their service for that 11-year-old based on uh, a knowledge 
of the particular risk on their platform and a discussion with the regulator and child safety experts about what needs to be done. But so but it's going to be that very open conversation, knowing you've got 11 year olds on there, not just pretending they're not there or, you know, that you somehow magic them away. So that means that you get a much more robust first situation where you're able to set up your phone as a, a, a child's account that's linked to your parents' account. And you can sort of set all kinds of rules for that. And you can discuss what kinds of rules you should be able to set and what kinds of rules sort of should be mandatory for a child's account. And you can you can have that discussion. And then when you get to the back end, it's kind of interesting because because you can infer that someone is a child, uh, which might be horribly insulting if you're not. But <laughs> you can sort of infer that somebody is a child and then you can start to put all of those protections measures in place for those who are not as digitally literate as others and find it hard to configure, etc. So we we leave no child behind us. That's George W. Bush would have said. I think that the 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 question that then comes up is on the back end. There there are some specific cases. The most well known, I think, is child sexual abuse imageries, uh, where there is proactive scanning and filtering for criminal uh, images that many of the large services engage in and then report in to specific institutions like NCMEC or the Internet Watch Foundation, etc. And, and there's proactive policing of that. Should I mean, that's a that sort of universally agreed, it's a good thing. Should that should that proactive policing be extended to things like grooming? Should we be extending it to other things that threaten children in order to make sure that we really deal with their online safety? Where where does the line for proactive policing go when it comes to this? So there's been a really interesting discussion actually in the European Parliament on this recently, which I've written about at Regulate.tech. But and and there's a guy called John Carr, who's an expert in the UK, who's written about this a lot. And it's it's actually really challenging because um, certainly at the European level there is a strong political desire to deal with things like grooming. And I certainly, when I was at Facebook, had massive pressure from police officers to say, look, you know, you you know this stuff is happening. You could spot it. If you don't try and spot it, you are neglectful of your duty of care. If there's something you could have done you didn't do, that's a failure. And we were we were hugely pressurized to do more to try and identify grooming activity. At the same time, there's no doubt it involves quite intrusive, privacy-intrusive techniques. And the, and the way that you have to do it is you, you would start, you'd filter down, you'd say, you know, what's the age gap between two people are communicating? If I see that pattern of messages, I'm going to start scanning the messages for sexual terms, uh, invitations to meet, all that kind of stuff. Hugely intrusive. We wouldn't normally feel very comfortable with having private messages scanned. But in this case, I think a lot of people would think it's justified. European Parliament's really been struggling with this. And, you know, they've sort of seen this stuff going on. They don't want to stop it because it's, you know, it sounds terrible not to be, you know, trying to catch child abuse. At the same time, the logic of privacy rules suggests it really shouldn't be happening. Only, I mean, you should only do the intrusion once the bad thing has happened. Of course, that's a real problem for anything preventive. If it's preventive, you've got to do the the intrusion beforehand. I, I even know people are uncomfortable scanning of images for child sexual abuse because they'll say look you should only scan the child sexual abuse images not all the others uh, the innocent ones <laughs> how do you do that <laughs> yeah you know uh, but yes. but i mean that's the logic of it so so they're really struggling with it and again i think we this is an area where we really need to have a much more open debate it'll happen over terrorism as well where you know society has a view society wants both privacy and security and ultimately we're going to come to a point where we settle on on where we are uh, balancing those two interests off against each other a world of absolute privacy we're not going to 
you know, look at the private messages of those child abusers or potential child abusers. A world of absolute security. We're going to be reading everybody's messages all of the time, and that's open to abuse. Somewhere in between, there's a set of rules, an algorithm <laughs> that says, under these circumstances, it is okay to do the scanning. Uh, and this is the kind of scanning we could do. And that's where the European Parliament is trying, sort of trying to get to, but it's still not fully resolved. Um, I think they created a sort of extension of, a, of an opt-out from privacy rules for this kind of activity for a period of time. Um, but as I say, I, I think the public could have this debate actually quite easily. I, I think it's actually in some ways it's, it's more of a struggle for politicians who have to sound either you know, I'm all for privacy or I'm all for protecting kids. And most of the politicians I can tend to be in one of those camps. Uh, much harder to get to the place where you go, you know, this is enough privacy and enough protection. Oof. That's, that's you, a difficult if, thing to say. If you put the question to to the, the the sort of proverbial man or woman on the street, I think the I think the result would be fairly simple, wouldn't it? I mean, most people would say, if you can find people who are engaged in grooming, I'm fine with you reading a few of my messages. That's sort of where I think yeah. most people will go with with their own analysis. So, so I think it's really interesting that. But you're saying that politicians are struggling more with this than we would in an open public debate. I think that's that's very true for for a fair bit of, of the stuff that we've been discussing on online child safety. I think that more people people would like for platforms to take an active responsibility in in policing this. And that's sort of just a general emotion, a feeling, and they don't necessarily think about what that means. Because I think the other thing that we haven't mentioned that doesn't have to do with privacy or uh, preventive um criminal uh, detection is the fact that you would then be privatizing a huge piece of what the state has traditionally done, which is policing. That would then be something that, you know, this would be evidence in court, that stuff that you found on the platform that was generated by the algorithms by these companies. And so, so it's a delegation of, of policing power, if you will, that would be unparalleled. And, and that I think is, is something that, that usually, again, a second order effect that's usually not discussed as much. No, and and, and again, you, you're right, and this, there is a tension there. And um, some of the discussions I certainly had were, was with police authorities who said, "Look, you should just hand it all over to us, and then we should do 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 the investigation." And and there, you know, and from a sort of ethical or constitutional point of view, that seems to make sense. There, there are two challenges to that. I mean, one one is just volume. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, most police forces would not be equipped to deal with that. And the, and the second, and this this is a sort of harder one to get at, though, is just, um, you know, the, the consequences of doing that will be much, much more serious for a lot of people. And to take a slightly different example, again, this is very contentious, but I'll go there. There was a case, so when I was at Facebook, and it made the press, so it's not private, where there'd been the circulation of underage sexual images by a group of teenagers in Denmark, I think it was. And they circulated the images. They shouldn't have done that. They were found on the platform, like large numbers, you know, tens of kids in the school. The police insisted they were handed over. The police then go through the normal criminal procedure. All of those children now have a criminal record, which is quite serious. It potentially prevents them working with children, prevents them from entering into certain jobs. Again, very difficult question, but would it have been better? Is it better if those are punished under terms of service of a platform, uh, except in you know more serious cases? Or and again, who defines that? Or is it better all these things are handed over to the police? And this is another discussion we need to have, which is 
you know, as 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 um, certain forms of activity proliferate online, I know this is one that's debated a lot. This this sort of sexting, but where it is uh, apparently consensual between groups of say fourteen, fifteen year olds. Let's be clear. There's there's a whole spectrum there. Is that something that you always want to go to the police and have a criminal track, or is it something that you want? you know, online services to clean up and, and get rid of and, and sort of deal with very, very difficult area. And there are a number like that. So, so I, I, again, I, one level seems obvious, hand everything over to the authorities. Another level is be careful what you wish for, because the outcome of that um, m- may not be exactly what was expected. Or and I think it's, you know, it's important to remember, and it's a trivial fact, but none of these systems in social media or, you know, elsewhere were designed to produce evidence. They don't have the auditing, they don't have the way of determining that nothing was tampered with, they don't have any of that, which means that you're relying on a system that was designed for something completely different to then produce evidence in in court cases that could have very far-reaching conclusions for those involved. And so I, I think that there is there is reason to think through this, but my bet would be that in 10 years' time, there will be much more proactive policing privatized throughout the different platforms than we have today. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's happening today. So you're right, the systems are designed for two things. I think one is prevention, and the other is sort of cleaning up the platform. So, so they're designed, that the focus is, look, on, on other users. So the reason you don't want somebody posting terrorist content or sexualized content on the platform primarily is because that sexualized and terrorist content is going to be problematic for the community of users. And that's why they call things like community standards. I mean, that's where it started from is, you know, these are the acceptable rules of our community. And this is a set of content that we think is, is going to be problematic for the community. And so your system is designed to identify, get rid of it, not prosecute, not follow up, Sometimes, depending on the severity, you kick the user off the platform. You say, we don't want you anymore. You're too upsetting for our community. Um, but no, it isn't It isn't for retribution. Now, platforms have adapted. And there, and um, actually, again, one of the tensions there's often been between platforms and law enforcement is exactly what is the trigger for notifying law enforcement. So, uh, again, I was involved in a case where after a terrorist attack, um, the Facebook that I worked for at the time sort of went through, and again, it's public knowledge. We went and and did due diligence to say, okay, we've got some information about the attackers. What were they sharing with each other? We found messages. Um, we handed the messages over to the law enforcement authorities, thinking that was the right thing to do. And there, actually, the response was, well, why the hell hadn't you scanned for these and found them before? <laughs> and actually, we ended up being heavily criticized. I mean, we could have said nothing. Like it, was, it could have been like, you know, nothing done. But we thought the right thing was to provide that intelligence. And, and to say, what came back was a lot of criticism to say you should have done proactive scanning. Uh, again, incentivizing you to say, well, next time, I'll just keep quiet. I'll just kick them off and keep quiet. But so, so these sort of these questions of what are the right thresholds you know exactly uh, how bad does somebody have to be um if it's a 19 year old making sexual propositions to a 14 year old is that one that you refer to the police or is it only when it's a 25 year old or you know uh if they is it only when they arrange to meet them if they're just exchanging you know sexy talk is that okay uh, there's all sorts of like sort of threshold questions and again p- personally I would, I would much rather have those out in the open i'd much rather as a user of the services i know that and this is where i do see the regulatory framework the digital services act or the, the online harms act in the uk 
this is where they could be really helpful if they're done right, because we would have a document agreed between regulators and platforms, which spells this stuff out. Um, there'd be a bit of operational stuff you don't want to expose. But I th- again, I think that, you know, well, we can't tell you what we're doing because it'll tip people off. I think that's overstated. But in general terms, I think we said, look, this is how we're dealing with grooming. Uh, we have a protocol and our protocol is if we see these general triggers, we're going to hand over to law enforcement. If we see these other kind of behaviors, we're just going to kick them off the platform. Uh, uh, this is when you know, sexting turns into a criminal reporting issue. And if we do, this is how we re- record it as evidence uh, in order to provide it, blah, blah, blah. And let's get all that written down so that it's not mysterious. Um, certainly, it should be between the regulator and the platforms. And I say, from my point of view, wherever possible, it should also be made public. But it, sometimes it won't be able to be, and then the regulator of the platform can no, But it. it could also be audited um, by human rights organizations, even without uh, making it public. Exactly. You can, I mean, we have the, the Global Network Initiative model that, that does exactly yeah. that. And so I think that there's there's uh, there's great value in that. But I do think that the prediction holds. In, in five to ten years, you will see a lot more of this being... Yep sort of an integrated policing solution with the platforms as a first line of an early warning uh, function, essentially. Yeah, I, th- I mean, that's the only way you can deal with it at the scale we're talking about. It's literally the only way you can deal with it. And I often thought, so, so again, one of my frustrations sometimes is when we're in the regulatory debate, it's the, it's the sort of policymakers going to war with the platforms. And I, I kind of understand the frustration that drives people to take that view, but it's ignoring the reality that the only way that this can be dealt with is through cooperation. Oh, and the other thing that oh. it ignores that really irks me is that they seem to assume that platforms don't have good intentions here. And I haven't met a single exactly. person when working at Google or in YouTube that did not want to make sure that kids were safe online. And I think that's that's another thing that we, we need to sort of set straight, this notion that platforms don't care about kids' safety because, you know, I'm, I'm you, can, you can certainly accuse me of being biased in all kinds of ways, but I I think that we often start off on the wrong foot, assuming that there's not a common concern. And I think that also leads us astray in the debate. And it's one of the things I liked saying first when we had these discussions and we were invited to all of these meetings, both you and I, was to sort of just set that out. I have a lot of engineers and people actively thinking about this, wanting to do the right thing. Now, let's help them do that and not set up, you know, age limits or other weird signal legislation that doesn't create the right incentives for either side. Yeah, but but I think that um, partly that comes back to what I described earlier, which is when our, our critics critics of the model as a whole, in which case their starting point is, well, your services are bad for kids, they're bad for people, and they're bad for kids, and therefore, how whatever good you're doing to kind of ameliorate them, that's not not okay. It's never going to be enough. And then there are others who who don't have a problem with your service, and are, are much more willing to accept that. Uh, just as you describe, within all the things that a service does, this is one of the things that's taken most seriously. But th- that um, seems to me to argue for something really interesting, which is that if this is the case, we should we should at the outset state our our shared assumptions as a society when we debate the online harms legislation or we debate uh, the DSA. We we should try to make sure that at that point, when we do that, we have shared assumptions, and we should debate if one of those shared assumptions is the social media platform certain all kinds of different in the services are a net benefit to society if regulated in the right way because if if you don't agree to that assumption 
there's a completely different discussion to be had. And then you will never, ever end up with something meaningful on the discussion of the Online Harms Act or the DSA. Exactly. And I think it's really critical to understand this. I, I saw the reaction you know, when um, Facebook launched Messenger Kids. So, uh, and now recently, I think they've launched an Instagram sort of targeted at younger audiences. And the reaction from a lot of people was outrageous. You should not have done that <laughs> uh, because you're just trying to lure your kids in to, to um, become part of your surveillance capitalism machine later on. And so, you know, like if that's your assumption, if you, if you're saying like, a service like Facebook, Instagram, Google, TikTok, whatever it is, can never make a service that's okay for kids. Yeah, we are. We're starting from a completely different assumption from those people who are saying, well, these services are legitimate, uh, f- fine if properly regulated, and they can be made safe for kids. And therefore, we're going to applaud you know, the efforts of uh, an Instagram or a Facebook who have listened to us and decided to kind of create a customized version with all the right safety features. So that's a, that's if- a pro tip to, to our old colleagues then, to try to actually get the assumptions out there if possible. I actually think that would be a really helpful thing yeah. to do, to sort of see if there's a shared set of assumptions that we can start arguing from, because then we can get to this point where there's one of my favorite political philosophers, Charles Larmore, has this term that, that everyone that I've talked to recently will be bored to death with because I've been plaguing them with it. And it's, it's, it's <laughs> the term reasonable disagreement. And he has this notion yes. that there's such a thing as reasonable disagreement where you share a number of assumptions, but you might have arrived at the current situation from different paths, which means that you weight and value things differently, but you can still have a reasonable disagreement about how to do things in the right way. And, and the contrary to that then is when you share no assumptions and you have absolutely no common ground and your disagreement will not have any of the reasonable characteristics that he points out. And I, I think a lot of the disagreements we're having about online child safety are really not reasonable disagreements to my sense uh, I'd, I'd add another phrase which is existential disagreement which is i disagree with your right to exist <laughs> and and you know and again we should be really candid some people really uh, that's fine that's their, their entire like, viewpoint they they do not like large particularly american internet giants they do not think they should exist and they're very candid about it and they look at 20 different ways in which you know they could be got rid of and they look at regulation to get rid of them and if that's your starting point uh, you're going to and you're going to apply that lens to every every aspect of it and that does mean yeah you're going to say look um facebook can never be okay for kids they can, whatever they do it will never be okay because facebook's not okay i i disagree with their existence um and i say that's fine but let's let's have the debate on those terms and then there'll be a group of other people who say really what I'm looking for in the regulation is to improve Facebook and make it better. Um, And they will come at it very differently and there'll be a point at which they say, you've done enough. You know, you've done enough. I'm really happy now. And, you know, I think you and I are certainly in that latter camp. I mean, it's for obvious reasons, but, um, you know, I'm definitely in that. Again, just as somebody who who watches what's going on here, I, I would feel much more comfortable with my children using services that are run by American internet giants, because I know they they have these really good people, than you know, s- services that are run by unknowns yeah. for unknown purposes and unknown reasons and who are really unaccountable. There are some very good services for kids. It's not to discount those that are specialist and dedicated, and, and that's fine. But, but in the sort of entire universe of apps that are available in an app store, the ones that come from the major internet companies, I think, are backed up 
by serious engineers with great expertise and brilliant systems that are working way in the background. And everything I've said about, you know, you know, it's scary for internet companies to you know, identify younger users explicitly because they run into legal problems. You know what the engineers, the engineers are frustrated that they can't do more. Like that's the kind of engineers I want who are like, can't you remove this legal barrier? Because look, if you let me flag all the 11 year olds as 11 year olds, there is so much more I could do to keep them safe. Um, And I suspect in some cases they're doing that and taking a legal risk because it's the right legal risk to take in the name of safety. Yes, yes, very much agreed. And I think actually, paradoxically, the people who have, as you say, and I like the term, an existential disagreement with, with, uh, with the internet or with internet platforms or with American internet platforms are actually holding this debate back because what happens is that they find no solution good enough, which means that they keep uh, opening the debate again and again and again. So we never get forward, which means that they are, you know, if you really wanted to sort of be harsh and, and and take this to its extreme, you can say that that's actually creating a risk for kids online. So over time, one that accumulates and becomes bigger and bigger because they're not seeking actual solutions, but they're seeking ways in which to negate the right to exist, to your point. And and that seems to be, yeah. that seems to be less productive. <laughs> There's a tension again. Some of it, and I've been involved in politics, and, and you know, you need the extremes in politics uh, sometimes to, to sort of drive things forward. And I say a lot of the people who work in this space are really good. The fact they're so passionate and single-minded, they're keeping something on the agenda that would otherwise slip off the agenda, and we should recognise that yeah. and respect it. But but some of the solutions they propose may not be the best solutions. Um, uh, you know, because we're going to end up again, like in politics, you often don't want the solutions at the extremes. You want the extremes to keep driving the debate. Um, but the solution will end up being something a little bit more sort of balanced, uh, where various other things come into it. I think my, I think my point is that as long as you have a solution, it's fine. When you don't, that's what, that's yeah. when I feel you're stopping the that's, debate because, yeah. because it, you yeah. know, anyone who brings a solution to the debate is welcome. And those solutions may well be at the extremes, but it's the people who never even bring the solutions that I think are holding the the debate back that's right so let's get back honest honest age in android and ios that is the solution that i'd like to leave us with this week I'd, if anyone wants to challenge that and come up with a better one that's great but i i just think you know over time uh, when the phone is honestly telling every internet service that it, that the person's interacting with the honest age of the kid that gives us the starting point and and the service can accept that without creating, you know, sort of incurring massive legal liability, but can accept it and respond to it appropriately. We're getting some. And on top of that, you would also have the, the sort of agreement between platforms, regulators and the general public on where you proactively monitor and what kinds of flags you set up and how you secure the evidentiary value of those flags in different ways, which would create the collaborative exactly. environment. Exactly. Those are those are the harm reduction plans. That it literally is a document that I think should exist as a almost a contract between the regulator and each platform saying, we've identified the harms, this is what we're doing to reduce them. Uh, and that, as I say, big chunks of it in the public domain and other parts, as you, as you rightly pointed out, subject to audit and inspection and other things so that we, the public, can be confident. And that will be really good for us when we want to choose to use different internet services, that we can see that and that our regulators on our behalf as citizens 
have sort of put these documents out there that allow us to to make value judgments about different internet services and what they're doing. That's excellent. So we solve this. Why don't they, why doesn't anyone put us in 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 charge of it? I mean, this is very strange. I think when we have all of the solutions. So so uh, thank you for that. That yes. <laughs> that uh, I, I am sure that people will happily point out to us, and we really like it, by the way, when people point out to us that we're wrong. So <laughs> so don't hesitate to come back and and let us know we're wrong. It that um. Uh, that discussion is our first discussion. I'm sure we'll get back to the subject, but this concludes our 18th episode of Regulate Tech that can be found on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, and we hope to have you with us next week. <laughs>